Good morning. Uh, my name is Chip Mitchell, and I serve as the lead evangelist, along with my wife, of the Greater Philadelphia Church of Christ. And I am your guest speaker here in New York City. And uh, I am honored and uh, privileged to uh, get the opportunity to speak to uh, you guys this morning. I uh, do hope that uh, through all of this that uh, your faith is strong. I'm sure that uh, it has been very challenging as New York City has uh, been hit so hard by the pandemic and all the different challenges that are associated with that and the many different things that are uh, plaguing our country. My prayers are with you. And uh, I, I bring you a special thanks from the Greater Philadelphia Church of Christ, uh, along with a personal thanks uh, for my wife was converted in New York City in 19. 86 in Queens. Uh, I think the New York City Church at that time was 250 people. And three years later, uh, the New York City Church, along with my wife, was she went on the planting to plant the church here in Philadelphia. And uh, I am eternally grateful uh, for your faith, your convictions, your sacrifice, uh, obviously with the church. But uh, my wonderful wife, Ruby Mitchell, and she has so many friends in New York City and is so grateful for the memories, the times that she has had with all of you. And I likewise have a number of great friends. And I, I just want to extend a warm thank you to Sam and Cynthia Powell for inviting me. Sam has served as such a iconic figure of faith for me over the years. Uh, Long before I was in the ministry, I, I looked at his life, his faith, and his convictions, and I was always inspired by his faith. And to uh, serve uh, alongside in, in our uh, East Coast uh, neighborhood uh, is, is truly an honor. And uh, why don't we go to our Father in prayer, and we shall begin. Father, thank you for this time. I am honored and privileged uh, to share your word with my brothers and sisters here in New York City. I pray, Father, you continue to protect their brothers and sisters, their families, their friends, as uh, so much has happened. And God, you are sovereign. You know all things and you know what is good and what is right. And I pray you be with me uh, here this morning as I share uh, my heart and my convictions from the word. And I pray uh, that you minister through me and allow your spirit to lead and guide. Father, we love you. We need you. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, amen, brothers and sisters. I'm excited to speak with you. Uh, here uh, at this time, and uh, we're going to be talking about God is unstoppable, the unstoppable God. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is almighty and powerful, and uh, we see that throughout the scriptures, that God's purposes and his plans happen. We read over in First Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 11, it says, yours, Lord, Listen to this. Yours, Lord, is great is the greatness and the power, the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things in your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you what? Thanks. And praise your glorious 
name. You know, here in First Chronicles chapter 29, we see uh, this pivotal moment for the people of God. Well, why? Well, they're in this monarchy, and David is, is king, and, and great things are happening, and, and they're inspired by what they're going to be doing, and God has blessed them. And it's in those moments of greatness, in those moments of victory, in those moments where things are going awesome, that it's pretty easy to believe that we serve an unstoppable God, that God is unstoppable. His will, his plans are going to be done, and we find faith in those moments. And, and when great things happen, we're filled with faith and exhilarated with convictions of joy because we know that God is unstoppable. You turn over to Jeremiah chapter 32, and you read in Jeremiah, this is a different time. This is a time that uh, Israel had just done wrong. They they had disobeyed God. They had been in a long period of decline and rebellion against God. And here in Jeremiah chapter 32, we still see that God is unstoppable. Beginning here in verse 27, what does it say? It says, I am the Lord, the God of all who mankind is anything too hard for me. Now watch this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. I mean, you know, there's, there's times of greatness, right? When we do right by God, we expect success and great things come. And when they come, we know that God is unstoppable for we've done right and God has blessed us and God has brought forth the fulfillment of his promises. But we also know when we do wrong, when we're not right before God, when we're disobedient and rebellious to God, we know that God's wrath will come upon us. And we know that in those moments when we are caught dead wrong, faithless or disobedient, we know that God is still unstoppable. We know that. The hard one is when we're blameless or righteous, right? <laughs> when when we do right and, and, and we don't see uh, the blessings that we anticipate, right? That, that's when we, we begin to question, is God still unstoppable? Is God still sovereign? In Job chapter 42, we, we get this, this statement here, the, these few verses uh, in the midst of great suffering. And in verse 2, it says, I know that you can do what? All things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. What is the challenge here? Well, the challenge here is you've got Job who is deemed by God as blameless and righteous. And yet seemingly the wrath of God, the retribution of God, has come down on his life in full force. You see, when we do right, when we're righteous or true to God or true to faith, true to obedience, and suffering comes upon us, then we begin to question, is our God unstoppable? Is our God unstoppable 
in his promises to me. You see, when we do right and great things happen, we feel good. When we do wrong and retribution comes, we understand that. But when I do right, when I'm righteous or blameless before God and retribution comes or suffering comes, then I begin to question, is my God unstoppable? You know, this story of Job, it's a fantastic story. It's a fantastic. I encourage you, brothers, just read over the story. It's, it's a powerful story. Well, it takes place in this foreign land, far from Israel, in this place called Uz. The characters are believed to be non-Israelites. You got these three or four characters that come into play, and they're non-Israelites. You, you know, the story focuses on the suffering of Job, but it really doesn't give the reason. It, it you know, you, you, you go through this countless arguments and, and back and forth and even an interaction with God to find out why, and at the end of the story, it really doesn't clearly give an answer to the reason for his suffering. The story, it actually begins in heaven. And there we have God in, enthroned and heavenly hosts all around him. And, and then he points out that this Job, this gentleman Job is faithless. He's blameless. He's a righteous man. And then steps forward this being, the Satan, he steps forward, literally the accuser steps forward and he poses before the throne of God that this Job figure, this, this, this righteous or blameless individual is really righteous and blameless because it's contingent upon the blessings that you have bestowed upon him. Let us take away those blessings and let's see the full nature, the character of this gentleman named Job. So there in heaven, God says, so be it. And then suffering is bestowed upon Job in an incredible way. He loses everything. You know, the story begs to ask the question, why do blameless people suffer? Why is it that in the midst of doing right, great suffering can come upon you that it's not really answered in this story alone but it begs to ask that question for here is job blameless as god even defined and yet he's lost everything and great suffering has come what is that question really is god's justice if god is unstoppable if God is all-powerful, if God is the God of heaven and earth and all that there is in our universe, and blameless individuals are not protected from suffering, then is God just? Well, in comes Job's three friends. And these three friends, well, what do they represent? They, the best of Near Eastern thought, really. They, they come and they go through a cycle of questioning, three cycles of questioning. And, you know, the first one is about, well, is God just? Is, is God really just? And they believe that God is just. And, you know, they go back to another round. Does God run the universe on this strict, uh, uh, principle of justice? Does, they believe he runs on a strict principle of justice, the whole universe. And, 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 and then they come back around for another set of questions. And, and how then is, jo is Job's suffering explained? Well, well, these guys said, well, the bottom line is, Job, you've done wrong. They, they, 
They tried to micromanage God into, well, God is just. Therefore, when bad things happen, it only happens to those who have done bad things. And they're trying to simplify the complexity of the will of God, the unstoppable nature of God to fulfill his purposes in mankind. And they try to simplify it. And Job is wrestling back and forth with them. And they're saying, Job, the bottom line is you've done wrong. And they even start inventing things that he's done. They're they're coming up with all these hypothetical scenarios about what he could possibly have done wrong that has brought this great suffering. And Job is wrestling and Job is pleading his case. I've done nothing wrong. Well, what is this all about? Well, there's a big assumption. There's a big assumption that if you make wise decisions and you're good, guess what? Success and reward are coming your way. If if that's how you live, if you are wise and good, then guess what? The, the natural progression, because God is just, is success and reward. And then if you do evil or stupid things, then guess what? Disaster and punishment are coming your way. That's the big assumption that these three are mulling over basically with Job. And, and they're caught in this dilemma, or Job is, is caught in it, because he believes God is just, but he doesn't, he knows he hadn't done anything wrong, and he's, he's, he's having a problem with the sovereignty or the unstoppable nature of God, that God is good, and God is going to do what is right, and somehow there's a dilemma. The unstoppableness of God has stopped working in Job's life. And well, what happens? Well, then Job gets to this place after all this time and he he blames God. Not only is he, he blames God, but he goes to God. He says, you've got to give me an answer. He understood God was almighty. He understood God was sovereign. He understood that God was unstoppable. Why has this occurred to me? Why? And God responds. Well, you know, God basically comes to him and he answers him in a storm of a cloud. And it's it's overwhelming. And as God begins to answer, Job's like, oh, my, what in the world have I done? What have I unleashed? And God's response is, you know, nothing of the complexities, basically, of the universe, that this this world that we live in, this universe that we see that somehow, some way, we have brought the entire universe in harmony with my one little life and my suffering, that my world is indicative of the entire universe. Therefore, if my world is not where I feel like it should be, then the whole universe is at fault. But we neglect to understand the complexities of all of mankind, all generations after us and before us. But what we can focus on is our 95 or 100-year life. That, that, and the world revolves around that. And God opens up Job's eyes to the complexities of the universe. And Job is like, I should have never <laughs> asked this question. And God concludes with two issues in this world. And he gets to the end of this this story or this response to Job, and he he speaks of these two massive beasts, the Bohemoth and the Leviathan, these these creatures that he does not 
portray as evil or unrighteous, but that these two creatures are in life. And what do they represent? As you read through the story, as God responds, they represent two things, disorder and danger. And what God is revealing here is that, one, the universe that we live in and all the, the lives before and after us, the complexity of all that is heaped into this world that we live in that has disorder and danger. And it's represented by these two beasts, and that's the world that we currently live in. And, and, and what is this? Well, this is reminiscent of Deuteronomy. You know, here is Israel. They've, they've left Egypt. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God gives them a warning. God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15, he says, See, I set before you today. What does he set before us today? Life and prosperity, death and destruction. He says, in life, this is what you're going to have. You're going to have life and prosperity. You're going to have death and you are going to have destruction. That is what is in the world. These two beasts, danger and disorder, they are all there. And he says, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him. You see, in the midst of life and prosperity, death and destruction, what does God want from us to walk in obedience to him? Job becomes this iconic figure of obedience, right? And to keep his commands and decrees and laws. Then you will what? Live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you draw away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will what? Certainly be destroyed. So in other words, if there is certainty on a lack of disobedience. But with disobedience and faith, there is life and death. There is prosperity and destruction. But if you refuse to be obedient, there is certainty in your destruction. And we see that in Jeremiah as God says the Babylonians will come in. Why? Because of your disobedience. You, know, you read the story in, of Job and you go, what in the world? Why? Why is a blameless man, a righteous man before God, suffering this intently. When we read in the Bible, we see that uh, all the prophets, the, the book of Moses, all the prophets and Psalms, all speak of who? The coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, who is Job? Job is a Christ type. Well, how do we know that? Well, you look at his life. Job's sacrifice and intercession turned away God's wrath there in Job chapter 42 from his friends. Was that not Jesus the wrath of God was turned away from us because of Jesus interceding for us. Job was reject, rejected and exalted, right? Is he not a Christ type? Jesus was rejected by his friends and yet exalted to the right hand of God. Job had to wrestle in prayer in the midst of his suffering. Did not Jesus wrestle in prayer? Did not Jesus wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer to the point of blood dropping? Lord, your will be done not mine, a surrendered spirit to the unstoppable nature of God's plan, right? He had to suffer through that in prayer. Job learned obedience through what? The things he suffered. Did not Jesus learn obedience through the things he suffered? Job was a Christ-like type. Job was innocent. 
Yet though he was righteous, he suffered. (laughs) He was innocent. And he suffered. Is this not a vivid picture of the foreshadowing of the coming of Christ? That an innocent man, a righteous man, a man without sin, would suffer. We also see that Job received back his life. Is that not Jesus and the resurrection? And he lost his life, but yet he was resurrected to a new life. A foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ, Job was. Well, what is that? We, we get a chance to look at a man like Job and be inspired of the coming Messiah. Be inspired by a man that imitated that life of Jesus. The obedience, the humility that was brought upon Job to surrender himself unto God. And now we see in the New Testament, we see even the apostles running after that same faith, that same obedience. For we read about Paul in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of what? His resurrection and participating in what? His suffering. Here it is. When you read that, now you go, wow, he... He got it. He wanted to be like a Job type figure, which was a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, that in the midst of being innocent, in the midst of being righteous before God, faithful and obedient, to embrace suffering, understanding that in that suffering, I'm going to be obedient unto God and faithful unto God, understanding that God is still unstoppable when wrong things are happening to the righteous. He says, I'm the participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, so that, well, somehow I may attain to what? The resurrection from the dead. You know, we serve an amazing God. And God paints vivid pictures throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament of his love for us. God is unstoppable in his relentless pursuit of us. And God proved that the unstoppable nature, the level of love that drives that unstoppable nature is only found in Christ. For we see that all the stories from the Old Testament to the New center around Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it's at this time that we come before God, being all the more inspired by the countless figures that we see in the Bible that bring forth the resurrected life of Christ, that bring forth to us God's unstoppable nature to love us and to give his son as a ransom for our inheritance. It's at these moments each week we stop, we pause to remember the Lord, to remember his body that was given up for us, his life. To remember the death and the resurrection, the blood that was shed on the cross that was poured out for our forgiveness. Let us go to our Father in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for giving up your Son, the unstoppable nature that you have that pursues us regardless of where we're at because you love us. And you've proven that love by giving us your Son. You've proven that love of thousands of years where you've demonstrated the love that you would exude through Christ through the stories of the Bible. It's true that that we find hope and that we find our assurance that you love us and that you've adopted us. We thank you for the body that was given up. We thank you for the sacrifice and the blood that was shed on the cross. And we thank you for the resurrection that gives us a hope of a resurrection to our own lives. So we don't deserve it, but you're giving it to us as a gift. Father, we thank you. We love you. We need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.